engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 210. And today we are joined by Whitetail Habitat consultant and author Jeff Sturgis. And we're diving deep into his strategic, detail-oriented perspective on improving whitetail habitat for deer and deer hunting. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we're talking whitetail habitat improvements. And joining me to discuss this is Jeff Sturgis. Now, hopefully you're already familiar with Jeff. He's been on the podcast a couple times back towards the beginning. Uh, But if you're not familiar, he's the author of three whitetail hunting and habitat related books. Those being Whitetail Success by Design food plot success by design, and mature buck success by design. He's also the man behind the Whitetail Habitat Solutions website and YouTube channel and a traveling Whitetail Habitat consultant. And of all the people out there talking about food plots and improving habitat and working the land and stuff like that, Jeff, I think, has without a doubt probably been one of the most influential people on me. And I think that's because he has this very unique and strategic way of thinking about habitat work that really intrigues me I guess nothing he does is by chance nothing's random everything's done with this larger picture in mind everything kind of fits together like an individual piece part of a larger puzzle and that's fascinating to me I love the the amount of of care and mindfulness he puts into the work he does on a property Uh, a big part of why whitetail hunting is so fascinating and exciting to me is this puzzle it's it's putting all these pieces together and when you put the habitat part of it into the equation. It just makes things even more interesting. So that is what we're going to talk about with Jeff today, the strategic kind of tactical way to go about thinking and making habitat improvements on your hunting property. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I really enjoyed this one. But before we get into that, rather than doing our usual pregame show, uh, since Dan can't join us, we're not going to do that. But I wanted to kind of address a question I got last weekend. Um, I was on another podcast. I was on the Meat Eater podcast, and I was asked if I thought baiting and food plots essentially equate to the same thing. 
And I gave an answer kind of off the cuff. And looking back on that now, I sort of blacked out. I'm not exactly sure what I said, but I do know I don't feel I didn't feel good about my final answer. I didn't feel like it really made sense. Um, so I've been thinking about that since then. Like, how do our baiting and food plots different or like? What do I really think? Um, and I wanted to somehow be able to communicate that better. So I thought I'd take a stab at sharing with you guys some of my thoughts on this. And I'll say right off the get go, I'm not saying that uh, one or the other is is good or bad. Um, I personally don't bait. I've chosen not to use bait simply because that doesn't fit into what I'm looking for out of my hunting experience. But I'm not going to hate on anyone who does bait in an area where it's legal um, and where they've you know shown there's if there's not going to be any disease concerns or anything. If it's legal and you want to do it, more power to you. I have family members who do and I'm not going to judge them at all. Um, but it's not for me. So when I was asked this question, I said, no, I don't think that food plots and baiting are the same thing. And I think first off, you can just look at the practical differences. So number one, um, you don't have the same disease concerns with food plots as you do have with baiting. So when baiting, you've got a pile of corn maybe dumped in a two foot by two foot square area. You get a lot of noses touching. You got a lot of saliva in the same area. There are increased risks of transferring disease. That's something that's been talked about for a long time. It seems to be there's, there's pretty widespread consensus that that is something that if there's disease in the area, congregating deer unnaturally can potentially increase the spread. So that's one kind of practical difference. Number two, I think this is kind of common sense is that, you know, food plots can benefit wildlife in a much wider way, in a much longer standing way than bait can. When you have a food plot that, you know, produces food for seasons long or an entire year. That's very different than what a pile of corn can do. Not only is it a length, but it's also the quality of food. It's also the the, the diversity of species that can benefit from a food plot versus bait. Um, the impact you see from a one acre clover plot are, are night and day compared to what you might see from a pile of corn or a pile of sugar beets or whatever it is when you look at how deer and turkeys and rabbits and and pollinators and all these other animals and, and, and critters out there can can enjoy and, and take advantage of that nutrition and that habitat. So those are a couple of practical differences. They're kind of, um, I think, relatively common sense. You can see those are different. But I think probably the biggest difference for me isn't so much a practical matter. It's more of, um, it's more of like a a deeper philosophical difference maybe in the act of planning a food plot or improving habitat. Um, and I think one of those big things that you get when, at least that I get, and maybe this is just me, so take it for whatever it's worth. But for me, when I am working the habitat, when I am planning a food plot, I get this connection to the land, the connection to the animal that you simply can't get, I don't think, when you just pour something out into the ground. Um, when I'm when I'm working the dirt, I am thinking about the land and the elements and the habitat in a deep, deep way. I need to understand soil and water and rain and sun. I get pulled into this natural cycle and I become a part of it. Similar to why I find hunting so compelling because you become part of this food cycle. You become part of kind of the, the circle of life, I guess. That also happens when you start improving and working and understanding habitat too. You're pulled into this this other piece of the puzzle. Um, I mean, just 
you, you never learn to appreciate rain so much and, and think about weather so much as when you start planting food plots. That's just one interesting example. But all these things that are going on in the natural world all of a sudden become part of like your daily life in a new, profound way that, that again, connects me. It pulls me into this world. Um, and I find that really compelling. You know, another thing for me is, is the difference in work. The, the sweat equity that has to be put into, the effort that has to go into making a habitat improvement changes it for me too. Um, I, I think I've mentioned this example before, but it's something that r- resonates with me a lot. And, it, you know, there's this mountain in New Hampshire. It's called Mount Washington. And my wife and I on our honeymoon, we decided we were going to climb to the top of Mount Washington. We were going to hike all the way to the top. It was, I, I can't remember, 4,000 feet of elevation gain or something. It was a serious hike. It was like an all-day hike. The weather on top of Mount Washington is some of the most uh, severe and dangerous in the entire country. Um, so it's kind of a, it was a pretty cool little adventure we were going on for the day. And I mean, we worked our tails off. It was raining and sleeting and climbing up and over boulders and all this kind of stuff, really the kind of stuff that I'm sure my wife was hoping to enjoy on her big uh, post-wedding celebration. And we get all the way to the top, and we worked our tails off. We get to the summit, and we see a parking lot, and we see dozens and dozens and dozens of people getting off of buses and walking around up on top of the mountain. And they were looking out at the scene, and they are looking off into the distance, and I realized then that we were experiencing the same thing. We were both on top of this mountain, but we were processing it or seeing it through a completely different filter. Our idea of what was happening, our experience on top of that mountain was night and day between what my wife and I were feeling and seeing and experiencing versus those who had rode a bus or a train or a car up to the top. Because because it had to do not with actually getting to that end destination, it had to do with the journey to get there. The experience was really about that journey, getting up on the top of that mountain. And I think the same thing applies to making habitat improvements or food plots. For me, at least, this is just me. But I feel like when I plant a food plot, yes, part of my goal is to enhance my hunting opportunities that might lead to me killing a deer. That's the same end goal maybe that someone or maybe that if I was using bait, that would probably be the same end goal if I was baiting. Um, but that journey is completely different. And for me, that journey is is the most compelling part of it. Again, it goes back to what I just talked about, that connection you get to the land when you're working it. So that's the second deeper way I think it's different. And finally, I think it's, you know, of course, the way you get to watch the wildlife benefiting from these improvements, the way you can engage with it afterwards, it's it's really fulfilling to see animals, wildlife, turkeys, deer, birds, rabbits, groundhogs, whatever it might be, feeding in a clover plot that you worked on all spring and summer or coming out of a bedding area that you improved or using some kind of new feature that you put in place that you thought might you know, help this property hold more deer or, or transition more deer and seeing animals actually use it and benefit from that, that's an incredibly, um, I don't know, it, it's a powerful feeling. I, I still get excited about it and enjoyment out of it. Now, many, many years since I've started doing this stuff, it still is like a new novel thing every time I see it. And Elder Leopold uh, wrote in a Sand County Almanac something that I think kind of sums this up really, really nicely for me. He said this, quote, Acts of creation are ordinarily reserved for gods and poets, but humbler folk may circumvent this restriction if they know how. To plant a pine, for example, one need be neither god nor poet. One need only own a good shovel. 
So acts of creation are ordinarily reserved for gods and poets, he said. But we, with a shovel or a tractor or a rake, a handful of seed, maybe a saw, we can make our own acts of creation. We can enjoy those things ourselves as habitat managers, um, as habitat improvers. It's, it's a unique and a really cool way to engage with the natural world, I personally think. Um, and I'm, I'm fortunate. I don't own land yet, but I do have a piece of property where I'm allowed to make these improvements. I know not everyone has that situation, but I think it is a pretty cool opportunity if you do. I understand why some people that aren't in this kind of world, some people see it and they don't get it or they find it um, they find it to be a turnoff, like we're farming for wildlife and they view that negatively or we're trying to manipulate too, thing, too many things, we're not taking advantage of or we're not understanding the natural movements. But being a part of this system, an act of creation, getting to, I don't know, insert ourselves into this bigger picture, this natural world, it's a pretty neat opportunity that I've come to really appreciate. And in today's discussion, we're going to hear all about how Jeff does this with a very strategic point of view that I think is really interesting too if you're approaching this from a hunting perspective. So that is it for my rant today. I don't know if I answer the question any better. I'm sure you guys have some opinions on that too. I'd love to hear it. And I guess now I will stop my rambling. We're going to pause. We're going to hear from our Whitetail Property segment right now. And then we will get Jeff Sturgis on the line. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tom James, a land specialist out of central Indiana. And Tom is going to be telling us about what the very first habitat improvements should be for a land manager. Good question. Um, some of the first key things, the fundamentals that you want to think about is when you think in terms of what a deer requires, the, the food security cover and water. And uh, the QDMA has a great analogy of the thinking about the lowest hole on the bucket that you need to plug up to keep the water from leaking out. So what could be missing on your property that the surrounding land may have? And so you want to do a quick assessment. Maybe it's food, maybe it's water, maybe if you can, uh, maybe it's cover. If you can look through your woods and see 200 yards, then you've got an issue with, with uh, too much shade, not enough sunlight, creating new uh, potential brows and, and cover for your deer. So maybe it's a timber, uh, a timber, either stand improvement or a harvest or a combination of two that's going to allow some more new growth to come in and thicken up your property maybe it's as simple as you not leaving an area alone as a sanctuary if you're traipsing all over 40 acres and pushing deer off every time you go then that's that's obviously an issue so maybe just an adjustment in the way that you move around and hunt the property and approach things uh if food is your lacking ingredient or your lowest hole in the bucket then even in timber, it takes some work, but you can certainly clear out some openings and, and plant food. Um, and I would suggest considering both uh, perennial food and annual food, stuff that you can leave in like clover and chicory as a perennial coming back every year and do some fall planted cereal grains and brassicas for the fall time. So you've got a year round program going on. And typically it's not an issue in the Midwest, but if, if water is a lacking ingredient, then maybe you can create a water hole or, or even some of the new systems like the bank's water uh, watering uh, tanks that you can set up that are mobile and fill up and provide water sources for your deer so that they don't have to leave the property to water. Um, again, it's fairly rare, but that could be a consideration. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tom currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash James. That's J-A-M-E. 
E-S. All right, with me now, back on the show for the third time, is Jeff Sturgis. Thanks for being here, Jeff. Oh, it's great to be with you, Mark. This is this is great. I love love chatting with you, and uh, I hope we have a good good talk today. I definitely I definitely think we will. And I was just thinking back, the very first time you were on the show was all the way back in the spring of 2014, so four years wow. ago. Um, and that that's kind of crazy, while. yeah. Yeah. And in that one, we talked about food plots, and then we talked once more, I think, two years ago. We kind of talked about hunting and a lot of your different ideas revolving around actually taking action during the hunting season. But today, what I wanted us to focus on was kind of Habitat Improvements 365, like the entire spectrum of things that we can do on a habitat. Because I know from reading all of your books and your many articles and watching all of your YouTube videos and all the things that you're doing these days, um, you have a lot of thoughts and philosophies and ideas and actual tactics on how to take a property and turn it into a, a whitetail paradise. I mean, you, you kind of have ideas that go across the whole spectrum, impacting everything from food to bedding to transitions to how deer use a property to how you as a hunter can use a property. And I've always thought that of all the people out there talking about, you know, manipulating or working on deer related habitat, your way of thinking about things has always made the most sense to me. And it's like intrigued me the most because of how strategic you are with everything. Um, so this is just a long roundabout way of saying, I love the stuff you talk about, Jeff, and I'm glad that you're here to talk about it with us. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, Mark. I know it's something um, I actually, as you can tell, probably from the writings, videos, books, whatever, I have an extreme passion for it. And, and you know, and that's where all this started was taking that love of hunting and working on habitat and then kind of uh, just falling into a, a career opportunity and in being able to put those ideas from all the hunting experience um, into, into the habitat and then helping people, whether it's writing, creating the videos or actually going to client visits. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 I really love to hear when people appreciate it and, um, keeps me fired up. And I, if you can't tell, I love doing it. So I, I feel very, uh, very blessed to be able to do what I do. So, so what is it about the habitat side of things that's so compelling for you? Um, especially maybe for someone listening who, likes to hunt, but they haven't yet tried making changes to the places that they hunt um, or manage. What is it for you that's, that kind of has gotten you by the heartstrings? Well, I think um, it's, it's the entire picture of the whitetail world. And, and, and honestly, I, I'm pretty boring because I don't, um, I don't elk hunt. I do very little bird hunting. I've gone grouse hunting, things like that. Uh, squirrel hunting growing up. But I just, I love whitetails and, and it all revolves back to hunting and the hunting days and growing up as a kid and trying to have it, had to, you know, we had to figure it out ourselves. We came from a non-hunting family. And so diving into it and always wanted to improve our hunt. And then I think it was 99, I met Ed Spinozola, was introduced to the QDMA, might even been 98. And from there, just really began to realize, and I, I started planting food plots in 95. So going back a little ways really wasn't a lot of information out there, but again, going back to wanting to improve the hunt, found there were great ways to improve the herd and use habitat to improve the herd on small parcels. And, uh, and really it was, you know, the love of hunting and that translated into kind of year round pursuit and passion, um, of all things whitetail. And that certainly includes the habitat 
you know, that even translates to public lands, um, whether you're improving the habitat on private land or trying to recognize those habitat features on public land. Um, it really revolves around uh, whitetails trying to figure out their daily lives and, and having a, a passion for that. Yeah, I have really enjoyed how you relate a lot of the stuff back to how you can identify it in a setting like public land too. That that I thought was pretty unique and interesting um, because there's a lot of things like you talk about. We're trying to create things. If you have a property where you can manage and, and make habitat changes yourself, you can create these features. But if you don't have that ability, at least understanding what types of features are that deer, what kind of features deer relate to? If you know how to at least identify those that are already created, you can go out and find those on public land or pieces you already have permission on, right? Right, right. And, the, and to me, the concepts that you manage habitat or herd with, um, and, and even hunting, really, they're, they can go between private land, public land, and then big parcels and small parcels. And, uh, and really, you just have to understand that balance of how to accurately apply that concept. And that's why there's no cookie-cutter design. There's no cookie-cutter bedding area, travel corridor, uh, food plots, you know, that you really have to match them to the specific habitat. And, and then when I find you do that and you hit that right uh, match for property to habitat improvement, then when you use some of the concepts um, that – and the really concepts that – you know, there's not a lot of concepts out there where you can just read a book and say this is – you know, I, I have things that, I, you know, phrased um, depth of cover, paralleling habitat features, perpendicular access, and there, you know, per- parcel efficiency. And there's all these different concepts, but they're really just things that I recognize out in the deer world, whether I'm scouting client parcels or in public land or my own hunting pursuits, try to name it, see it over and over again. I think I've worked on 700 parcels in 25 states now. And, and so I get to see these concepts played out from Northern Michigan to Virginia, down to Mississippi, you know, Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, wherever it might be, and try to understand why deer are doing something here. How how does that relate to what they're doing over there? Um, maybe just a difference of balance of size or parcel or number of deer, and then uh, really accurately try to apply that to every parcel you go to. Yeah, yeah. That that breadth of experience you have makes I think your perspective especially helpful. Um, and it's like you said, you've worked on so many different people's properties and given them new ideas and consulted with them. When you walk a new property, what 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 are you looking for? How do you decide what should be done? Can you walk us through your mindset when you when you step foot on that new piece? Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because you know a lot of people want to just jump right on the property right away, but I found over the years that it's really important to sit down and have a discussion in the morning so that um, I can start to get to know them for one thing, their goals or resources because that's a complexity in itself right there. And I guess it boils down to, I love the puzzle, you know, whether it's the puzzle, the habitat and the hunting and how everything fits together, but also the people that you work with, it's that they're part of the puzzle because everyone has different resources, goals, um, and they come from different backgrounds and experience levels. So that's what we're doing first thing. So that when we hit the property, um, I already have a good idea of the deer numbers in the area, the hunting pressure in the area. And, and you can kind of figure that out regionally a little bit. Um, you have an idea of what deer are going to relate to, um, as far as what they like to bed in, for example, do they like real tight constricted space like in Northern Ohio, or do they want to, are they used to a lot of space with low deer numbers and a lot of cover, say in Northern Minnesota, or even a big woods of Kentucky or big woods of uh, Pennsylvania. 
And so when we hit the, hit the woods, we really, I have a little bit of a mindset of what deer are going to relate to. And what I'm really looking for is, you know, you're starting to, everything boils back down to food. Food is what defines daily movement for deer. And, and so I'm looking if they're on board for food plots or expanding their food plot programs. And we're really starting at food first. And if it makes sense that a food plot's here, meaning that we can plant food there, we can get around it. We don't have to spook the deer that are, that are feeding on that plot. Then how does that relate to a bedding area, travel to that bedding area? And, and most importantly, once you have those definitions in place of deer movement, then how does that relate to hunter access? And so I'm going around the property and I'm basically looking at all the habitat types. You know, for example, might have a 48 acre tag alder swamp. We don't need to have a grid pattern and, and cross through that tag alder swamp and look at everything, but I need to really see how the edges of that tag alder swamp relate to the edge of that hardwoods, which relates to that clear cut that they just put in, which relates to a food plot and where all those position on the property and how they can be used to basically move deer, deer during the daylight hours to define their use. And then once that definition is made, then we can define how people hunt. And it's not just, you know, it's a great stand location because it's a cruising funnel. It's, this is a good stand location because it's reasonable to expect that this would be on the downwind side of a buck bedding area, something you could use in the morning. Uh, this is an intermediate stand where you can use for cruising, for bucks that are going to food in the afternoon or coming from food in the morning. Um, this is a stand location closer to food that you can use in the evening. You might be able to target does easily at a spot like that and successfully without infringing on buck bedding. And so it's, you're putting this, all these pieces together, and then that gives you an assemblage of stand locations that you can actually say, this is reasonable to think this is a morning stand, this is an afternoon stand, this is an evening stand, this is an all-day stand. So as we put these pieces together out on the property that day, I'm putting that together in my head, and then we get back at the end of the night and uh, draw out that plan. I use an aerial photo and a fine point stylus and then draw out that plan discuss all those stand locations, habitat features, water holes, mock scrapes, whatever might have been that fit for them and their personality, their resources, everything, and then and then go over those questions at the end of the night. So we're really trying to put the pieces together um, and tailoring it uh, to on a very personal level to that that individual client. Yeah. So so now what if I'm just a regular guy or girl out there on my own on yeah. my property? How how would you recommend someone, you know, I've got thoughts on this, but how would you recommend someone determine what's needed? You know, how do I figure out where my weak spots are on my property? If I, if I don't have someone like you who can go out there with some experience and tell me, um, what are the things I should be looking for or how do I know where to start? Kind of, if I'm trying to figure out what's the, how do I take in the big picture of my property and figure out where to go, what's step one and two? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Mark, because, uh, you know, part of it is I feel there are no secrets. And, and I think I have close to 600 articles on my site and we talk about this and then the YouTube videos and books. So when I, I, I keep notes out on, on client properties, I have about, uh, uh, I don't know, 150 uh, potential articles or videos, you know, topics. So I'm always finding new information. But really what it boils down to is, yeah, we can have all those concepts. I try to discuss them until... I can't discuss them anymore. I really try to give as much information out there, but it boils down to on a parcel, you can have too much food and you can have too much cover. There's a great balance of both. And once you have that balance, you're trying to make the property as attractive and, a, and the movement of deer defined as much as possible on the parcel so that you can still get on and off the parcel 
without spooking the deer within that parcel. So really first you're looking at that balance. Um, you know, you could, for example, clear cut your property, create a lot of browse. Um, but browse in itself doesn't define daily movement unless it's in a wilderness area where there's really not that that becomes or maybe on public land down in Ohio where I've hunted or um, up in the UP of Michigan where that clear cut becomes the cornfield in the area and so that defines that daily movement and so I'm looking at how can you define daily movement which with a food plot if we plant it uh, with the neighbor's ag field but the ag fields are poor because they're always rotating um, they could be plowed under they could be picked one year not the other it could be beans one year corn the next so really I'm looking at, if you have a lot of great cover, we need to complement that with food. And then I was on a property yesterday, for example, they had 40 acres of food plots on 400 acres. Um, and they really, I'd like to, them to cut that down to probably 25 acres of food, uh, provide more screening and cover around those food sources and actually work on the, uh, the quality of the cover that they have. They had a lot of cover, um, but it needs to be a higher level of quality cover, and then that'll help define where deer are bedding on a daily basis and then where they're feeding. So really you're looking at that balance of food and cover and making sure that you're not improving so much. Because you can imagine, just did a, a new video today, just shot it, where talked about daytime properties and nighttime properties. There's a lot of nighttime properties. And some of the biggest nighttime properties, meaning that's where the deer go after dark, which is what you don't want to have, are some of the most improved. because Imagine you attract all the deer in the neighborhood because you have great native grass plantings. You have really high quality food plots that you've completed to a T and you've perfected. You have water holes, maybe even mock scrapes, travel corridors, acorns, orchard, whatever you might have. You have a lot of attractions in your parcel, but you don't manage that level of attraction. And so because you don't manage it, um, you're, you constantly set yourself up for spooking deer all the deer you've invited in the neighborhood from a mile away, then you go in and spook them and your, your property quickly becomes nocturnal. So you're really trying to not only assess that balance of cover and food, but how can you position that and define that movement on a daily basis so you can actually hold those deer and keep from spooking them every time you go out and hunt. Because ultimately, um, the lowest hole in the bucket is hunting pressure, how much hunting pressure you apply on your property, and there's no amount of quality habitat that can overcome that. In fact, a lot of times, um, the higher the quality of the habitat, the more risk you have of uh, not being able to manage that attraction on your parcel and creating that nocturnal herd. Can, can you elaborate on what's causing that nocturnal herd? Because you talked about spooking deer, but can you? Sure. You know, I've I've heard you talk in the past about the attract repel conundrum. Um, yes. Can you, can yeah. you talk a little bit more about that specifically? So I, I think what you're getting at is that you're saying you've made all these great improvements like a food plot or something, but you haven't been strategic about where it is or what your access is. And then you're, you're walking past or doing something like that. Can you, can you elaborate or expand on that? Sure. Sure. There's, um, and there's a lot to elaborate on that because, um, for example, it's not just the amount of food. It could be the position of food. Uh, and, and obviously, if you have a giant food plot behind your cabin and every time you go out in the morning, every time you come back in the evening, you're spooking deer, then you're educating deer. Um, and, and so food plot is, is a part of that. You know, is that food plot on your, on your access trail going in and out of the land? And because of that attraction of the food, which, which a food plot really uh, per square inch is probably the highest um, level of attraction that you can have on your property. You know, some of the dry parcels I'm sitting here looking at four to 500 foot bluffs around my house in the Valley where I'm at. 
And, um, and up there, a little water hole that's a 110-gallon tank can be a huge level of attraction. But a food plot is where they come, they stay, and pretty easy to spook them off. So um, if your food plots are setting yourself up for uh, spooking deer, then, then they can really be doing a lot more harm than good. But that can be said for native grass plantings, bedding areas. Um, and, and then a, another thing is if you're creating bedding areas and food source um, that, that set yourself up to actually spook deer that are on the way to and from those areas, um, then you could hurt yourself. Or you're creating random movements, uh, meaning that you have cover on the inside, you're bringing them deer to food on the outside, and then you're quickly sending those deer right through over to your neighbors. Um, your neighbor could have a stand on the fence line that's actually spooking deer on your property too, uh, because you had that food plot on the edge. Um, and then, and finally, another thing, so you have, you know, the food can really, the, the attractions where they're located, piecing those attractions together, uh, pushing deer into or out of your um, line of movement, your, your hunting access. And then at the same time, the food plots that are poorly located that infringe on your depth of cover. And, and what I mean by that is you can have a 40 acre parcel and you're putting a five acre food plot in the middle and you can't go 155 yards in any direction before you're off your border. So you have to access your land and you have to house box and does on your parcel if you want to try to hold them all in that 155 yards of depth and you just run out of room. Where you can cut that parcel in half, create 20 acres, running lengthwise is still 440 yards deep, put that five acre parcel of food plot or that five acre food plot right in the front of the parcel. And if you do the math, you still have over 300 yards of depth of cover behind that food plot where you can expect to house uh, does, bucks, and then you can actually create an assemblage of stands where you have backside of bedding for bucks and then does, uh, evening stands up closer to the food. And because the food plot is positioned towards the front of a parcel and you're, you're maximizing your depth, that 20 acres can be easier to manage deer on and actually manage your hunt than that, that larger 40 acres with the food poorly positioned in the middle. Can you, can you elaborate on what you so mean by... a lot by, of stuff, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depth, depth of cover. Can you elaborate on, on what you mean by that and why that's important? Sure. Yeah. See, one thing that I firmly believe in is that as a buck ages, um, he really likes uh, a more remote setting for his daytime bedding. And, and I even find that as a buck's age, and, and I've been able to observe bucks um, around here at least up through eight years old. And what's incredible is about some of these older bucks is that their home range during the daylight hours seems to really shrink. And I'm just going by a camera observation where we had an eight-year-old buck that over the five years we had pictures of him, several hundred pictures, we had all but three or four of those pictures out of one camera location. And now the neighbors around us only saw that deer around that area and it ended up being shot 200 yards from there. Um, and so very defined. I, I look at it as a, as an older buck, as a grumpy old man, you know, the older he gets. And, and I'm not saying my dad is a grumpy old man. He's 80 years old. He's one of the kindest, the kindest men that I know in my life. Um, he is, he's an awesome person, but I do know as he's gotten older, he really enjoys his alone time. He was able to sit with my son, Jake, the last week um, in the house and spend time with Jake. And it was just the two of them and everyone else was out of the house. And my dad loved his time on the couch right here, just looking out at the hills, his quiet time. And he, he really 
um, seems to be, want to be left alone for the most part. He loves to be social with the family and everything, but he really loves to be left alone. He loves his crossword puzzle time and his nap time. And I, and I look at a, a mature buck is that way. So if you have a parcel that you don't have a lot of depth on, meaning that a big food source is the highest amount of stress to a, to a deer. Um, as far as is it only going to a lot of times last hour of daylight, hour and a half, that mature box only showing up at, at right at dark. There's a lot of stress in and out of that food plot with does and fawns. Hunters gravitate towards that food. So it creates a pretty stressful situation. And it seems like the more stress you have at that food source, the larger the food source, the more deer you have, then those bucks just push further and further into the resources, recesses of the property. Now I also see like, if you're down in Northern Ohio and you don't have a lot of cover, Southern Michigan, Northern Indiana, Southern Wisconsin, Northern Illinois, then you can compact that movement where a buck doesn't have to go a half mile away to find a remote spot because a lot of times he doesn't have that amount of cover available. So he might go three, 400 yards off that food source at the most. Um, and then you go to transition into mixed ag, you know, 50, 50 cover and food. And you might find that buck goes back, uh, five, 600 yards. And that's an acceptable distance from that remote or from that, you know, high traffic food source. Where in the UP of Michigan, I've shot mature bucks that were three quarters of a mile to mile back off of bait piles that were in the hardwoods and guys are getting their pictures, uh, the pictures of that buck at 10 o'clock, midnight, two in the morning. And then I'm shooting them at 1030 in the morning, three quarters of a mile away back in his honey hole, back in his bedding area. So that that depth of cover required up in that big wilderness land where deer used a lot of space is actually closer to three quarters of a mile. So if you're looking at a small parcel that's 40 acres and you're putting food in the middle and then you're allowing does to bed around that food, which is they can tolerate a lot more stress and the herd, herd mentality of those does than a mature buck, then you really run out of room for a mature buck to potentially bed on the edge of your property or within your property boundaries. And even if you have a hundred acres or 200 acres, if you're fragmenting that parcel with a lot of food and a lot of different food plots, even though you have a large parcel, you're creating such a stressful environment with the amount of food on that parcel and the amount of traffic in and out of that food by both those fawns and hunters, then you really infringe on the depth that you need to actually have a mature buck. And so that's one of the things I, I take a good hard look at. And that's also what I look at on public land. You know, I like, if I'm, if I have a parking spot, I'm looking at where can I hunt an hour in 45 minutes in, and get in the middle of the cover where there might be a mature buck that um, has been pushed to or is preferred to bed in um, away from the high traffic uh, hunting locations. So you're looking at a pretty large depth of cover that you need on public land versus private, and then trying to manage uh, the locations of your food sources um, on private land so that you're not infringing on your depth, your potential depth as, as much as possible. So what's, what's like, and I realize this is there's no cookie cutter there's no perfect cookie cutter answer to this because it's all dependent on your situation. But it, but if you had to give yeah, me sure. like a cookie cutter answer as best as possible, what's like the ideal way to position a set of improvements so that you get these things you talked about? So you get that great depth of cover, but you, you know, I'm also thinking about you, you talked about having food plots too close to the edge of a property, then sending the deer to the neighbor. Like what's the Right. If you had to give like a generic best way to position these things, if you had like your perfect scenario, maybe what would that look like? Well, a lot of times food works really well near borders um, and borders, meaning borders that your neighbors don't have the cover on that will potentially house those deer during the day. So uh, food plots, 
close enough to the border that you can still get around it without spooking deer. And you're positioning that food. For example, um, I've had clients have had some great food plots up near a school or near a factory, near a subdivision, um, near an open ag field where you're bringing deer out of your cover and from 50 yards from your property border so that they can hit that food source as an afternoon food source that, that, um, you know, hour before daylight food source. And then after dark, they slip out to the ag field, which is a safe location. The opposite of that would be as if you put a food source on your neighbors, on your border, right next to your neighbor that houses the best cover in the area. Then you're potentially putting deer back on your neighbor's property that relate to your food source. And you're giving the neighbor the daylight uh, movement and the opportunity to actually harvest the deer that are um, focusing on your food plot, um, you know, after dark or at dark or just before dark. Uh, bedding areas work really well next to um, high quality or high high pressure on your neighbors. And so a lot of times, let's say your property was along, along a road, there's ag field to the south, you had open woods, and then your neighbors have woods to the north of you. The worst spot to put a food plot would be at the back of your property on the north side right next to your neighbor's woods. The best spot to put that food would be closer to the road so that you're actually holding deer on your own land, letting them travel across the depth of your land and then hit that food um, and then potentially go to the ag field out to the side. You don't want to ever create a situation where you're forcing deer to cross a road. But, um, you know, maybe your cabin's there. You're putting that food plot a safe distance behind your cabin so that you can actually get in and out of the cabin, get onto your property and not spook those deer out in that food plot. But the food plot represents more of a dead end of movement, mean, meaning that they come out of the cover, come across your land, hit that food, and then go wherever after dark. Interesting. So through all of this, and you've mentioned this several times while you've been explaining some of these scenarios, but you talk about defined movement. Um, and, and I, I and I mentioned this early on, but part of what I'm so fascinated about when it comes to how you approach this is how you have everything kind of working together. It's a, it's a systemized approach. Some guys just put a food plot where the, wherever they can put a food plot, and then they put some bedding or they try to improve some bedding where it looks good, and they're like, all right, cool. They put as much food as they can get in there, but but it seems like you're always right. thinking very, very strategically about how these things interact with each other, how each improvement interacts with the others. And so then you create what you call defined movement. Can you tell us more about a, what you mean by that and B how, you know, expand on how you create that, how these different positions and things that you've talked about, how they create that defined movement. Well, defined movement is the daily movement of a deer herd. And it's pretty cool because those move more straight line. They basically during the daylight hours, they move from bedding in the afternoon to their afternoon food source, hopefully about an hour before dark, hopefully it's on your land. And then they move off from there. So they move that straight little window. And, and really it's a small movement. Um, I love to use food sources to position um, those does first because you can get them to bed 50 to 75 yards off that food plot if you have just adequate cover. And then you can, you're basically by using food, you're positioning does and you're telling the doe herd, I want you to bed within 100 yards of this food source. And then that's freeing up the rest of your cover on your property for potential buck bedding at some point somewhere. So once you have that food, once you have the doe bedding, then you can figure out where the buck bedding is. Um, it's important that your food sources aren't open right into the cover, meaning that if you have open hardwoods for 200 yards surrounding your food source, then 
that potential bedding is going to be pushed 200 yards back to whatever cover starts, whatever changes. And then again, buck bedding is going to be behind that. So you're starting that first doe layer a long ways away from food. So what I'm trying to do is have a com- compact movement of daily defined movement where we have a reasonable expectation the bucks are bedded over there somewhere. And it might even be on the edge of your neighbors, but you're trying to define that afternoon movement so that bucks are there, does are closer to the food, and they're all moving towards that food source in the afternoon. And then after dark, they go wherever. And so that's that definition of movement. You're using bedding area positioning and food to define that daily movement. And then along that definition of movement, if it's hill country out here, then I'm using uh, uh, benches and saddles and the topography of the land where deer are moving already. And, and then you can enhance that with travel corridor cuttings. You can enhance it with bedding areas where they should be and bedding area cuttings that are appropriately matched for that size of the parcel. And then um, you're using water holes and even mock scrapes to further define that movement. So the more you can define that movement, now you can go on it and not the other way around. You know, the old school thing is this is a great open field. Let's put it, if this is the best soil, let's put a food pot there. This is a great place for a bedding area because it's a nice knoll. This is a good spot for a pond because it's a low area. But you, you have to match those habitat improvements to each other. So it's not like you're just going to send deer around in a carousel on your property all the time. It's just you're trying to create the movement so that, and that's why I like using multiple food sources or long food sources, food sources where deer can be hidden around corners, because then you can tap into multiple bedding areas and multiple movements, small compact movements on even a small parcel so that you can actually fit more deer into that movement, more deer into that definition of movement. And then that gives you a wide variety of stand locations. So by, by creating strategically located improvements, be that bedding areas or food sources or a few of those other things you mentioned, you can get deer to more consistently travel a route that you know about. And then once you know that route and once deer are doing what you have manipulated the habitat to allow them to do, that allows you to A, make sure you're hunting more consistently in the right place, and B, I think you would agree with this, it also allows you to better access and exit your property because you know where deer should be at any given time, which results in less educated deer, right? Is that is that kind of why yes, having this definitely. defined movement? Yeah, yeah that, yeah, you, you defined it a lot easier than I did, Mark. <laughs> that was a lot shorter and <laughs> more concise. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. It's really – and the thing about bucks that are a little bit different is um, I have a video coming out soon where I talk about uh, does traveling in straight lines and bucks traveling as loopers, meaning a buck will travel from the same bedding area every day, but depending on the wind and maybe even his mood, he might come in from a completely different direction. So it's almost like a football. You know, one – one way it comes in on the lower side of the ridge and it, it, it has this big arc that loops into the food plot on this way or this direction or food source. And then depending on his mood or wind direction or another buck in the area or a doe he wants to chase, he loops the other way. So it almost can, completes a, a football pattern of movement where you have the same starting and stopping point, but he loops around. Regardless, so if you're making those habitat improvements, worry beds, worry travels, the attractions along that travel route in the, in the form of, say, mock scrapes or water holes, maybe in a mineral station if legal during the summertime, you're really reinforcing that movement, making that movement more attractive and more defined. And then at the same time, what I find is those stand locations along those movements, there's some stand locations that I can get away with hunting every few days, even in a high-pressure area, because I'm rarely giving the deer an opportunity to see me or get into my wind cone 
or hear me when I get in and out because their defined movements make my hunting approach uh, highly defined. Okay, so let, let's let's go to the first part of this defined movement, which is where they spend most of their day, that being a bedding area. Um, can you t- can you tell me a little bit about how you go about you know choosing the area? And you kind of already have, I guess. But if there's anything else when it comes to choosing where to make those bedding area improvements, but then more importantly, what are the, some of the things you recommend doing to improve or create bedding areas? Um, yeah, t- talk about that. Yeah, that and I really like that question because um, if you look online, there's a lot of information out there about creating buck beds, for example. And and what I find is it's a little bit of a reverse situation where um, once you have a high-quality afternoon food source, uh, a high-quality food plot, and what I like about food plots versus an ag field is, for example, you can have a one-acre uh, food plot, and if that's going to last enough in your season and you have a diverse enough planting in there, then you can highly define movement to a one acre spot on a map as opposed to a 40 acre or 80 acre ag field. Uh, it's very precise and, and, you know, obviously compared to a uh, 50 acre clear cut. And so by having that food plot, very small area at the same time, when you improve and let's say you screen that food plot. So when you're standing on that food plot, you can't see into the woods very far. It doesn't take a great distance before does will feel comfortable bedding close to that food source, especially if you never spook them out of that side of the plot. Um, it might be that you have open timber on one side, grassy field, whatever, and the other side you have, you have bedding area. So really you're using that food to define doe bedding opportunity. And then what's left over is that buck bedding opportunity. And so that might be up on that upper knoll if you're starting from bottom going up. If your food sources are up top, then those does are gonna bed just over the, over the edge, over the military crest, around in that area on a bench. And then you're going to have those bucks bedding down low. So really the food, the position of the food will dictate if uh, bucks are bedding high or low and where those does are bedding. And then, so you have those, that logical chain where you have food, food sets up doe bedding and then doe bedding sets up buck bedding opportunity. And does it make sense that as long as you have adequate bedding, the doe bedding is actually more important than the buck bedding. Because if you can hold those does, like for example, go into a Buffalo County property in Wisconsin, you know, famed big trophy County area and you have these finger um, ag fields down below with these hardwood ridges. And the deer might not be bedded until they're 300 yards up on top of that ridge because it's all open wide, wide open mature timber all the way down to the food source. By creating cuttings along the food source, going up to that first bench 100 yards up, maybe that second bench that's 200 yards up, you can pull those does that are bedded on top right down to the the food plot or ag field edge and then that second bench, you could hard harvest or, or you know house more does or even young bucks. By the time you get back up to the top, now you actually have room for mature bucks. So it all starts with creating that bedding near the food, and then positioning from there. So as far as positioning and and bedding opportunity, I hope that makes sense. It does. And and then yeah, good. And and then when you dive into um, how to create bedding. Really, it depends on your property. For example, I like a lot of the little tight constricted bedding areas where it, you really want side cover. Side cover is very important. If um, you know about whether it's 30% of the lands I go to or 35 or 25, it's appropriate to hinge cut on a, on a you know a small percentage of parcels. Hinge cutting, I really like to create hinge cuts that are about waist high because then you're putting cover and browse and potential food right at deer level. 
a lot of these hinge cuts that are at head high, for one, they're more dangerous to cut. But two, you're putting that cover above the deer and you're putting the food well above the deer so that they can't utilize the cover or the food if they're looking side to side. So I like hinge cuts and I like cuttings where deer can actually maze and pocket throughout those cuttings. And if they can only see five, 10 yards in front of their face, that's great in low cover areas like Northern Ohio, you know, the areas I've talked about, uh, Southern Michigan, Southern Wisconsin, Northern Illinois, Northern Indiana, where you have um, a lack of cover in some areas and you have a lot of deer that you're trying to fit in one spot. But if you take that same bedding area where they can only see five, 10 yards in front of their face and you put that up in a big wood setting up North or even a big wood setting over in Pennsylvania, down in Kentucky, uh, Southern Indiana, wherever it might be, where you have a lot of space and maybe fewer deer, then those deer, what I find is they completely avoid that area because it's too tightly constricted. And you can kind of imagine if you have deer that are up in the wilderness section, uh, area up in northern Minnesota and uh, UP of Michigan, for example, and they have, there's a lot of coyotes, but there's a lot of wolves. And there's even cougars in some of those areas. Those deer do not want to be in a tightly confined area. And it, they're just really, even a, for example, switchgrass field, if they're bedding a switchgrass field up in the UP of Michigan, a wolf can go on the downwind side of that and pinpoint every deer that's in there and easily take one whenever they want. I think deer realize that. And so up there, you're looking at, you know, deer are used to seeing 40, 50 yards. They might be on a little knoll. They might have cuttings around them, but they're not right up against them. They can basically escape in any direction. And so you're trying to match the size of the bedding area and the, how tightly constricted that bedding area is, how far a deer can see how many different ways they can escape in how many different directions. And you're matching that to the number of deer and the amount of cover you have as the number of deer decrease and the amount of cover goes up, then you're making your bedding areas a lot larger. So deer can freely move around them. They still have browse on the ground. They still have side cover, but they can flee in any direction. And they, they want to be able to see in their beds, 40, 50 yards. And as the amount of cover shrinks, as the amount of deer goes, go up, then as populations increase, then you can fit a lot of deer. You can compartmentalize so that you could actually literally fit deer, fit a buck into a small bed that he might, it might be okay. He might tolerate that he can only see five, 10 feet. So, you know, like, just like there's no cookie cutter plan for a partial, there's no cookie cutter design or plan for a bedding area. And so I get a little nervous when I see some of the stuff online where, you know, uh, someone's talking about this is the best way to make a bedding area or this is the best way because really with that balance of size um there's a lot of different ways to make a bedding area and then again it goes back to landowner resources um their familiarity with the chainsaw and you know again let alone the complexity of the number of deer and the amount of cover uh some of the bedding areas i like just general wood woods maintenance it might be that you have an overall uh, traction for the woods and trying to increase the carrying capacity might be that someone would go in and every 30, 40 yards are knocking down a giant uh, red maple on their land in a lowland setting in Michigan, for example. They're putting that log and top on the ground, but they're de decreasing the canopy overall by about 30%. So you get more regeneration. And so you can take a 10, 15 air, uh, acre area that you really want to hold deer generally. And, and put a lot of structure on the ground and a lot of regeneration and browse. So you're turning that bedding area uh, that was a one or two out of 10 into a five or six out of 10. And then if it's a tightly constricted area where there's not a lot of cover, then you can really work on 
half acre, one acre pocket cuttings that are a little bit more like a clear cut where deer can maze and pocket through them. So you can say that, you know, generally in my woods, this is going to hold more deer. Maybe you're cre- creating a timber cut cutting in the select cut harvest of your timber if you have good timber value. But in these little one, two acre pockets out of this 40 acres, you might make five or six. I'm designating that there's a possibility for mature bucks to bed here uh, to define movement from this bedding area through this um, you know, mid-range level of quality bedding area to a food source. And then you give them a travel corridor and they, and they follow it. So really the bedding area is no, no cookie cutter bedding areas, depends on the property. And I really try to talk about that in the videos that I create in the, in the um, articles, but that, that does create a lot of reading for somebody and a lot of viewing. And, but I do, I do try to break that down because again, it goes back to same concepts of deer management um, that I feel work on any parcel, but at the same time, the application of balance can be drastically different from different from one parcel to another. Yeah. Now, now, from what I gather from you know hearing a lot of the things you've talked about, and from what you just said there, it, it seems like there definitely is something to the location of bedding areas that might define where does bed versus where bucks bed. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think I've also heard you say that you don't put much stock into the idea of like creating a single specific buck bed and saying this is going to be where a buck's going to bed because I pulled this tree down and I cleared out this space and, you know, people trying to do that. Is that is that right? Yes, uh, definitely. So what, what I like to do is, and it's almost like, um, you know, I'm not a betting man. I, I don't play poker much, uh, you know, a little bit of deer camp <laughs> dabbled in. I'm not very good at it. I, I'll play when there's uh, nickels and dimes involved, let's put it that way. And, and there's nothing else to do, but I do feel that you play poker in the deer woods a lot. And you're making decisions based on balance and level of risk versus reward. And one of those comes into the form of uh, creating buck bedding and bedding opportunities. So for example, you're using food sources to, to define where doe bedding is. Now doe bedding opportunity is the same as buck bedding opportunity. Uh, just because you make a larger room or a smaller room doesn't dictate that there's going to be more does or less does or more bucks in that location. Um, it's just going to be bedding opportunity. So you're, you're housing those does next to that food source. And then you're saying, I want bucks to bed up on that knoll or bench. Instead of going up there and hinging all my efforts and all my bets on a bedding area that's 20 feet by 20 feet, and I'm making this canopy tie down thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to hope that a buck beds in that exact spot. I'd prefer to take a quarter acre or half acre there, um, knock down an appreciable amount of timber, make sure that deer can freely move throughout the inside of it. There's very few dead ends, meaning that a deer turns right. There's a 20 yard corridor and it dead ends and he's, he's a sitting duck for a predator that's going through there. So I'm making sure I take out the dead ends. It's more like a maze and pocket. If you took your, your kids to, they could maze through there and have a good time and, um, and enjoy it. Um, you know, never ending a trail through there. They can escape in any direction. I'd rather say that I'm pretty sure that a buck's going to bet up there and he's going to half acre to half to one acre, maybe even a quarter acre in that area sometime. And I'm going to probably take about one tank of chainsaw gas, which will run about an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes of cut time. I'm going to cut that timber down um, in, in the safest way it'll fall. Mindful that I don't want to make a big mess with a big you know top that's going to fall in the middle of everything. And then I'm going to go through back through and clean it up with about a half tank of gas. So I'm going to use one tank of gas, one and a half tank of gas, through the chainsaw in each one of those locations. And, and then I'm going to use travel corridors, maybe even have a stand location or two on the backside of that bedding for different winds, maybe even different access points. 
different departure routes from that bedding area. And so instead of hinging all my efforts just on that one small bedding area, I'd, I'd much prefer to take a quarter acre to one acre uh, bedding area and be sure that he's going to be in there as opposed to hoping he's going to be in there, that I hit the right mark with that with that buck bedding. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, now what about a situation where we're in that instance where you talked about not having a lot of cover? Let's say my property has poor cover, maybe a lot, not a lot of timber, a lot of open fields, but I know I need to improve bedding or create new bedding areas. How would you say I try to create a bedding area from an open field? Could I use something like switchgrass um, or something like that? Yeah, that's uh this that's one of that's an area I'm really passionate about and it's a lot of fun because um early successional growth is a great buzzword. You know, early successional growth, just take an old field, let it go. Well, I have an old field and if you look on some of my videos and some of the drone shots and some of the work we do on on the main property we sh- we shoot a lot of videos on, that field's been fallow since the 50s. And it's probably covered with about 5% of deer cover. Deer cover meaning that there's enough structure in there that will actually hold deer um, throughout the hunting season once all the foliage comes down, you know, I'd say November, December, October um, for that three months. And so even though that's been there for 60, 70 years and hasn't been agged and it's been allowed to return to early successional growth, it hasn't taken place. Now, if you go to better soils or other areas, maybe areas that are as steep, they can, they can fill in and, uh, 10 to 15 years, um, which would be on the early side. The beauty of switchgrass, switchgrass is a grass. To me, it's the only whitetail grass that, that, you know, I really like to plant because it's the one grass that can withstand snows, heavy winds, and last in through January, February, and a lot of times through March um, or April before you get spring green up. So that's, it's a type of cover species that you can quickly convert an old field to. And so let's say you have an ag land, you know, some ag land that you want to convert. You can frost seed switchgrass from September through February, maybe in early March, get the seed on the soil, and then you can use chemicals to make sure that that seed, that switchgrass is established. So let's say just for quick, you know, quick thought here, you take 10 acres of idle ag land. As long as your soil exposed, you can throw the switchgrass at about eight to 10 pounds an acre, which is a high rate. You want very thick cover. What you're doing is you're putting that switchgrass around the outside, around much of the 10-acre space in there, but you're only putting out about five acres of switchgrass in total. The pockets in between the switchgrass, you allow to revert to early successional growth, and you kill out the grass in those areas so that you actually have broadleaves come in, broadleaves in the form of goldenrod, ragweed, woody brush, woody browse, shrubs, trees, maybe even throw some box elder seeds in there, some maple seeds that grow quickly, all come in the form of food. Grass equals no food when it comes to even switchgrass. So what you're doing is using the switchgrass that in most areas will grow anywhere from 40 inches to five feet in the first year. And by the second year, six, seven feet high, you're using that as the bedding structure. And then you're allowing for those early successional pockets on the inside to actually create browse that's actually hidden by the switchgrass. The difference with a field like that compared to early successional growth is you can, whitetails can use that by the end of the second summer and going into the second hunting season, you have sufficient cover, lots of cover, and then you have browse. It doesn't matter if it's only a foot high or two foot or three foot high within that switchgrass. You can actually house deer, hold deer, or in that same field could take anywhere from 10 to 12 15 years on the early side, as much as 20, 30 years to cover in and fill in appreciably enough to actually hold deer, just allowing to go and, and have early successional growth. That is the same concept too, 
let's say you have 10 acres of red cedar, instead of just getting rid of all the red cedar and uh, trying to replant something different, just pocket out 40 to 60% of that red cedar on the inside, kill out the red cedar that's coming, kill out the grass, allow it to revert to broadleafs, early successional broadleaf growth. Now you're using the red cedar as your base, base form of structure and cover, just like the switchgrass, just like you can do with pines, you can do with spruce, might even have um, shrubs that um, that you can do that in. And and so you're using that base form of structure in the form of the switchgrass or the uh, red cedar, creating those pockets in the inside, and it's the same concept either way. So, Yeah, that, that kind of stuff is really intriguing to me because I feel like when you – a lot of people look at a, a big wide open field or something as like dead, no good land for wildlife, but – if you look at it yeah. in the way you're talking about, it, it's almost like a blank canvas, and you can paint whatever picture oh, you want. Oh, awesome! Like that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, kind of limiting for uh, tree stands, <laughs> but at the same time, sure. kind of imagine if you have a 10 acre field, you're looking at a rectangle north to south. Um, let's say you have an open ag field to the south. You're going north into that switchgrass field. You're putting a large food plot in the southeast corner and the southwest corner. And you're hiding it within that switchgrass. That switchgrass is six, seven feet tall along the side. Let's say it's uh, 50 feet into your property. And then you're creating lines that come down to that those food plots and go between those food plots. You're just basically carving out with a brush hog through the switchgrass up to the woods to the north. You might even put some food along the way. You might put some mock scrape on some posts along the way. You might put a water hole if it's dry along the way. You could actually put pop-up blinds like some of the, the redneck ghillie blinds or some of the soft-sided blinds you could just um, pile in with switchgrass and, uh, and hide that blind in. And you could actually come into the back of the switchgrass, go into a blind, look out a couple holes through the switchgrass, watch deers are passing by to go to big food. You can sit on that big food source with the right wind, say a northwest wind or a northeast wind on those lower food plots, making sure where the deer are entering and exiting the ag field and then you could actually hunt those in the evening with a gun, with a bow, um, hunt deer on the way in and out. And then those lines of movement that you carve out to the switchgrass that connect your woods up top, you know, to the north, then where those cuttings in the switchgrass and those trails that you brush hog, where they meet the wood lines, great places for stands, great places for uh, mock scrapes, for water holes if needed. And, and so you're getting, you, you might actually go past those food sources in the switchgrass 200 yards set up in the morning, wait for deer to come off the ag through your food, through the switchgrass cuttings, and you start to assemble um, that entire line of movement. And the switchgrass can be just a huge, just key component to making sure the deer on your, your food plots in the afternoon hours are hidden. You can hunt them to and from and at the food source because of the switchgrass. And then you're just sending them out after dark into the ag fields and, and you start to develop that entire uh, line of movement, line of daily movement for the deer where you can capitalize on, you know, backside bedding areas way to the north and uh, for bucks and then, you know, closer to the woods edge for intermediate areas and then finally to the food to the south and the switchgrass um, for evening sets. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, I can, I can see it all in my head. I don't know if that makes <laughs> sense to you. <laughs> I hope that translates it to people that I, I hate not being able to draw a picture, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's how that switchgrass can be such a golden opportunity to really define movement, hide food, hide yeah. bedding. Can you can you create, talk create a huge amount of opportunity? Can you talk more about the hiding aspect that you can 
use switchgrass or other things for you know you talk a lot about screening in a lot of your articles and videos and stuff can you yeah elaborate more on what you mean by screening cover how you can use it um why it's important sure the screening cover is so critical because basically what you're trying to do on your property especially on a small property you know half my clients have 60 acres or less um, my average client's about 100 acres but I have a you know quite a few large ones in there that bring up the average and so it's really critical that when you move in on and off your property, you're not spooking deer and you're not, you're not allowing the deer to see you. And so if your land is flat, for example, you could have 30 feet of switchgrass along the edge of a food plot. And if you're walking and being quiet and you're using the wind on the outside of that switchgrass, then you could walk right by a food plot and have 30 deer out there. And they don't, they not know that you're walking by, especially with some thick cover like switchgrass. I've had clients that have actually used a berm. I have one client that went a quarter mile down the road, a quarter mile up the other road, and then a quarter mile over. So he used three quarters of a mile of berm to hide basically a 40 acre field on the inside that he converted to cover and food plots. So he walks into a blind, literally parks on the road, has a padlock on the back of his blind, can't even see the entire field until he opens the blind door, gets in the blind, looks out the window. And so he can watch those deer every single day and they never know that he's ever watching them. It's basically like walking up to a window and looking outside, looking inside. Um, you're, you're looking into their world without them ever knowing you're doing that. And that's why switchgrass is great. Egyptian weed is something that's a short-term um, solution. It's, it grows, it's an annual one year. Switchgrasses can be maintained for decades. I love spruce, white spruce in sandy soils, high acidic soils, uh, Norway spruce, where you have a lot of sun and you have quality uh, uh, soils. You can use quit growing pines for an interim screen of five to 10 years, 12 years, and then let those spruce take over. So there's a lot of ways that you can establish those screening walls. Access is one thing, getting on and off your property, getting close to hunting situations. But then screening is really important around food sources because screening sets up that first line of security to deer to where they now feel comfortable bedding 30 yards, especially those doe family groups, 30 yards into the cover from a food plot. So you want that screening there in the form, it could be hinge cuttings. You're putting low hinge cuttings through there with several trails getting in and out uh, for the deer. So they don't feel too confined. Um, could be switchgrass, could be Egyptian wheat, could be spruce, but you're bringing that first layer of cover right against the food plot edge where you want the deer to start bedding into that side of the woods. And then that's in that case where you're using screening on an open woodlot to actually pull deer they might not feel comfortable betting until they're 200 yards in, but because of that screening, now they feel really comfortable betting right behind that screening wall. And it might be that, that that edge of the woods faces the Northwest where you get extreme winds, extreme cold winds. And now that you have 30, 40 feet of switchgrass there, they can get behind that switchgrass and they're completely out of the wind. They're completely sheltered and they're not exposed to anything that's going on in that food plot. So screening around food plot also forces bucks that are back in the timber they can't just cruise by at 150 yards and the hardwoods look out in the food and say, yeah, there's nothing there. They actually have to come out in the food now, look around in that food plot, see if there's any does out there. You know, if there's a buck out there, they want to chase past her. If they're a mature buck, um, they actually have to go into the food plot. Now it draws them out of the woods. Um, but really um, that screening, that first screening layer sets up the bedding opportunity going into your woods, which helps compact the movement and might help put that mature buck on your property instead of off your property borders. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the screening ideas. I've started incorporating this into some of my spots that I hunt and, uh, I've seen a, I've seen a huge help there too. Um, 
taking a step back a little bit. We we talked about betting. We talked about you know some of the different things when it comes to positioning things, but something we kind of glossed over is like that transition, that travel from betting towards the food. Um, and I yeah, know you've talked yeah. about creating either transition areas or like buck corridors or travel corridors. Can you talk, talk to us about that, how you can actually direct that movement by creating what you call like these bow hunting buck corridors? Sure. Yeah. What, what I like, and again, going back to, you know, first off, I really don't like using any kind of canopy across this because um, if the canopy falls in on a corridor and you're making a hinge cut across the top or tying something, then it, then it blocks off the whole corridor. But what you're trying to do is define the timber, use the timber, use the habitat that you have and make sure that deer can travel from point A to point B and that they have a much higher probability of going on this travel corridor than outside of it. So I'll give you some examples. Um, let's use big hardwoods, uh, big open mature hardwoods. If it's a northern setting where deer are not used to being confined, I might define that line that I want them to travel from point A to point B. I'm going to curve it a little bit, you know, not, not necessarily 90 degree turns, but you just have a gently sloping curve that goes through there so that deer can't see more than 30, 40 yards down the corridor. You don't want them to, you want the deer to think this is an access road or an ATV trail. Um, you want the, them to think this is their, their trail all the time, just a deer trail. And I might define that with ribbon going through the woods from point A to point B. Let's say it's 200 yards long. Then I'm going to go into that big open hardwoods and I might find advantageous trees that are leaning away and perpendicular to that line of movement and cut them anywhere from 10 to 50 feet away from that line of movement on either side of the line of movement. What you're trying to do is put structure on the ground, not cutting all the trees down. So it's a big clear cut mess and the deer feel confined because again, that you're thinking this is a Northern setting, not a lot of deer. They're used to a lot of space. So I'm making a pretty subtle cut on either side perpendicular to the movement so that trees are falling away from that deer trail. And what I'm doing is I'm lowering the canopy, um, reducing the amount of canopy by 20, 30%, which increases stem count and the amount of browse that's in that cutting area with, with really that deer trail being centered in within that cutting trail or cutting area. And then you're also putting structure on the ground in the form of logs and tops. So now the deer have more of a subtle cut down area, almost like if some high winds came through but then they have this chiseled out deer trail right through the middle of it that's surrounded by high quality browse regeneration and those tops and debris so that after a couple of years, it kind of blends all together. Now they can travel within that cover. If they're on the outside of that cutting, they're back into the open timber. So they might as well travel right on the inside and they have browse on either left or right all the way through their travel area. Because it's a straight line movement, you limit the amount of deer that are actually bedded on that within that travel corridor because it's just basically a straight travel route there's a lot of high traffic on there and you can kind of imagine if this was 50 yards off and paralleling your your property border you could walk along your border and walk into that cutting area get into a stand location look down into that deer trail that's now enveloped in in brush and briars and regeneration tops and logs get a 25 yard shot with a bow basically until you're halfway up that tree the deer can't see even climbing in so for one, it establishes a really good wall of protection along your property borders, um, but two, it allows you to hunt and get in close. Now, if you had Egyptian, not Egyptian wheat, but switchgrass, uh, brush, uh, briars, pretty easy to go in there. If it's a large area up north, you might want to use your brush hog. If you're in northern Ohio, there's not a, not a lot of cover, 
DR brush trimmers are great. I've had a lot of clients use those in, North, in uh, Southern Michigan, Northern Ohio, in those, those limited cover areas, because you can create this two to three foot uh, deer trail right through anywhere you want a deer to travel through thick cover and they'll travel through it. Um, now, if you're looking at say uh, medium age maple uh, poplar, you're cutting that timber down. Let's say it's a high deer density area where there's not a lot of cover, then you can afford to hinge cut trees away from that travel corridor um, right up to that edge. You might be that you're defining a line that's only two to three feet wide, and then you're hinge cutting trees that might be within two or three feet on either side of that line so that there's hinge cuts. that You're still making all these travel corridors porous, meaning that deer don't feel like they're confined like a travel, like a, a cattle chute. They can turn left or right and get out. Um, but in that case where you have very limited cover and you have a lot of deer, they're used to being confined, you can push that hinge cut right up next to your actual deer trail and bring deer down a pretty tight corner or a pretty tight uh, deer trail where you can't see in, they can't see out. And, and again, it, it's, it offers a great spot for stand locations and you can highly define movement because there's more cover and more browse all the way through that deer trail. You just have to consider the balance of the number of deer and the amount of cover in the area and what they're really actually used to when they're traveling through their habitat and how they relate to habitat and are they being too confined or not confined enough. Yeah. Like you said, it all comes back down to this defined movement idea. Um, and I know one other tool you use is water. Can you talk about how water fits into all this for you? Yeah. You know, it's pretty cool because we started using water tanks, oh, 15 years ago. And we're using half 55-gallon drums, cutting them in half lengthwise. And, of course, you get about 27 gallons left. And we found if the deer used them, um, and it was it was warm out. They they were done with them in a week, and we weren't back up, you know, down to the property or where we hunted for a month. And they ran dry. Deer, you, you lose that that pattern of use that the deer are daily visiting the water holes and experience. And, and then they don't come back because they're not used to that water. You know, they're used to that water being gone now. So we started migrating to 60 gallon tanks, and now 110 gallon tanks seems to be a good balance between, for example, last year, I didn't have to fill my water holes, um, at that hundred gallon size, just because we had so much rain. And so what water holes are great for. And when we first started realizing this is the previous landowners had created, um, mineral pits. And so they, they actually held water and we loved it. We actually tried to line them. We tried to fill them. Um, they'd always seep out, but what we found was, was really cool in October, September, November, is when we came up in the early season, you know, Wisconsin opens the third Saturday in September, we could see 800 pictures. I can remember in one pull, camera poll over about a six or seven week period. And about 700 of those pictures were in the evening as deer were heading to the water hole. And it made us think, you know, why are they not hitting that in the, in the, in the morning hours? But you think about it, at night, they feed on green vegetation, they feed on high quality food, that has a high moisture content, very digestible, and that supplies their, their water for them on a daily basis. They don't even need to take a drink. So all night they're, they're feeding on this great vegetation or food plots. They didn't really need to hit that water uh, in the morning. We found most of the time if the, if the deer are hitting in the morning, it's, it's, that's exactly when the rut's starting. So all of a sudden, October 23rd, we're getting buck pictures at 10 in the morning. In the evening, though, Think about these deer, they're back in browse areas. You want high quality browse in their area, meaning uh, woody shrub tips, 
hardwood regeneration, uh, briars, maybe even some acorns. All that stuff is hard for them to digest. There's a high wood count to it, and, and even corn is hard to digest for them in, in late November when it's low moisture content. So if they're feeding that on, on that all all day, they feed five times in a 24-hour period. One type of category is their daytime browse. That's what they, they feed on the different things I've talked about. That afternoon food source is the most critical, and that's what you can supply in the form of food plots and private land. And then at night, it's great when there's ag land around because you just send the deer out into the ag for them to feed twice during the night. But think about those deer back in their bedding areas feeding on browse all day. It's dry, hard to digest. The first thing they want to do is hit water on the way to food. So I love to position water near bedding areas. Also, keeping in mind of where bucks are going to cruise during the middle of day, middle of morning, and then making sure those water holes are a quick stop on a defined travel corridor or a defined bench system. Um, point, saddle, where you know deer are coming from that bedding area, they're going to hit this water hole, and then they're hitting that food source 100 yards away or 150 or even 50 yards away, where you can hunt that location over and over again. It's a quick stop for the deer, but you're not spooking the deer out of the bedding or the uh, food source that they're traveling to. So as long as a deer doesn't have to go backwards from his bedding area, like let's say you have a bedding area, the, the neighbor might have a water source 100 yards away, the opposite direction of the food, even if it's a great water source, you can expect them to ignore it and hit your water source on the way to food. If that food source that you have is where they want to they want to feed every afternoon, you just add that water. They're not going to go out of the way 100 yards to get to the neighbor's water. So even if it's a swamp that's 100 yards behind their bedding area, as long as it's dry between their bedding area and the food source, then a water source can be appropriate. Well, Jeff, I have about... 72 more questions I'd love to ask you, but uh, <laughs> I know that I know we'll that time, Mark. <laughs> we're going to have to do this another time. There's so much good stuff here to cover. And I want to tell everyone listening is that I'm just going to give you homework because we haven't even talked about food really at all yet. So I'm going to say, no, <laughs> go, go back and listen to wired to hunt podcast number 11. That was the first episode Jeff was on the podcast. And in that one, we, we focused primarily on food plots and food. So go listen to that after this one. And, um, and then hopefully Jeff, we can get you on to talk a little bit more, but I guess if there's one, is there any final quick thing that you think we should definitely mention related to habitat that we haven't touched on yet before we let you go? Anything else you want to make sure to leave us with? No, I, you know, what I can leave you with is Really, I like where you touched on that. Obviously, I, I love connecting habitat improvements, making sure that you highly define that movement and that you you really moved your safely around within your borders. That you know, in a, in a location that you're not setting yourself up to be to spook deer, that you can actually hunt this line of movement. It all boils back to trying to really hunt like a predator. You know, what's great about private land is we can say, you know, I want the deer to bed there. I want to, them to feed here. And you can set up that movement because if you're hunting your land like a predator, you're leaving a very little footprint behind when you hunt. You're not allowing the deer to see you, smell you, or hear you. Then you can set those deer up as the season progresses because in most locations, um, deer are spooked more and more as the season progresses. So if yours is that one property where you're setting the, ta- the daily daylight table for them and you maintain that consistency, consistency throughout the entire hunting season, you hunt like a predator you match your habitat improvements to hunting a mature buck to where you actually, you're hunting the lowest hole in the bucket. You're removing your hunting pressure. 
you're being ultra quiet, ultra secure, making sure they can't see you, smell you, then you really can have an exceptional opportunity on on private land. Even on, you know, my parcels that I, that I hunt out here are 52, 45, and 40 acres. So you don't need a lot of space. Then you can take those same concepts. If you want to do a lot of boot work out on public land, you can go find those same definitions of travel and those same concepts apply to public land as well. So private land, great opportunity to shrink it down, hunt like a predator, place your food plots, your habitat improvements, your bedding areas as, as you can actually be able to hunt them, give you that opportunity to hunt them like a predator. And, uh, pretty cool stuff that you can do on private land, even on a small parcel. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool stuff. Where can folks find your information elsewhere? Or if they want to go somewhere online and get your stuff, where's that at? Well, they can visit uh, whitetailhabitatsolutions.com. Um, if they put in my name, they can find that pretty easily. If they forget the name of the business and the website, um, I also have a Facebook page under whitetailhabitatsolutions.com. Um, I sell my books on Amazon or the website. And then also um, I have a YouTube channel that I think I still have. We just shot four more today and we have about eight in the loop that I'll put out over the next week, week and a half. But I think there's roughly 150 on there uh, right now. And, um, you know, and, and then on the website, I usually write, I think last year about 155 articles and um, we put out about 90 videos this year. We'll probably do 120, 120. So uh, YouTube channel, White Tail Habitat Solutions, website, White Tail Habitat Solutions, uh, Facebook, and then Instagram under White Tail Habitat Solutions too. There you go. Awesome stuff, Jeff. Cool. Always enjoy having you on yeah. here, and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, pleasure to be on here, and I can't believe that first one was episode 11, thinking back. What episode is this, Mark? This is by the way? 210. That's that's amazing. That's, uh, <laughs> um, real happy for you, and that's uh, a success story in itself. So pretty cool and, and really honored to be back. Hey, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. Let's talk again soon. And that's going to be it for us today. I hope you enjoyed this one. And like I just mentioned, we only covered probably about half of what I wanted to. Um, still a lot of great stuff, but so, so much more that we could touch on. So hopefully we'll get Jeff on again. And really in our conversation today, we, we were mostly just focused on kind of the strategic ways to think about positioning improvements on your property or creating improvements on a property that will help you as a deer hunter. Um, but there's so much more to discuss on this front just related to improving the, the overall health of the animals and whitetail herd on your property through improvements as well. So that's something we're definitely going to cover in the future. There will be more habitat-related episodes to come here in the next couple weeks, so keep an eye out for that. And, um, man, we appreciate you joining us. Really quickly here, I do want to thank our partners who helped make this possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, as I just mentioned, big thanks to each one of you for being here, for your attention and your time and your open mind to learning about these new ideas alongside of us. It's a blast. I'm glad you're here with us. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 